you have your Bible, we are in chapter 5 of the book of Judges, or as we've been calling it, the Gospel According to Judges, because that really is what this book is about. Yes, it is a book filled with sorrow. Yes, it is filled with accounts of sin, some very wicked and evil sin, actually, but that just means it's an account of real life. It doesn't hold back some of the fine or embarrassing details. It deals with them, and we need to deal with those kinds of things when they come up in our life and in the life of our church. But it's also a book of good news as well, a gospel book. We've been seeing how God in this cycle that we've noticed here, this judge's cycle, continually brings the people to see their sin and then causes them to cry out for God for repentance. To cry out to God, asking for forgiveness for their sin, and to help them get out of the trouble they are in. To a life defined by holiness and a right fear of the Lord. And every time this is done, God does it all through the work of a deliverer, a person that he raises up to lead the people and save them from their sin and the consequence of it. And so each time this happens, God is pointing them and us as readers to the final and sure act of deliverance that the Savior Jesus of Nazareth makes. And that brings us to our most recent example, the example of Deborah, the judge Deborah. And we need to recap a little about her because the fifth chapter of Judges is a response. It is a song based off of the events in chapter 4. So a little recap is necessary so that we'll be reminded of the context that the song comes from, which we covered over the last two weeks. So Deborah is the judge of this time. And if you remember, that's a pretty unique thing. It's unique because it was especially uncommon for women in this time period to be a ruler over the people. In many cultures, women were treated as less than men in many regards. It really wasn't until Christianity gained a strong foothold in the world that women were treated with dignity and respect across cultures. But even still, in Israel, if they were adhering to biblical ethics, women in their culture would be treated and viewed with more respect and dignity than women in the surrounding cultures. And we see that happening here in this account, uh, in Judges chapter 4 and chapter 5. Israel has been in sin and rebelling towards God, but God, in his kindness, hears their groaning, and he raises up a woman to be a judge in Israel as a response to their cries for help and repentance. And it's God who grants repentance, of course. And not only is the fact that this judge is a woman different, but this judge is a prophet as well. It's the first time that we've seen the judge-prophet combo, so that makes her different than Ehud, Shamgar, and Othniel right off the bat. She's a trusted prophet and therefore a worthy judge. But it turns out that she is different as well because she's not going to be the human deliverer in this account. In a sense, God is always the actual deliverer. It's always God who is delivering through a certain means. And he chooses to do so through human agency, through a person. In the past, this same deliverer has been the judge. But in this case, He used the judge to call and encourage a would-be deliverer, a general in the army named Barak. So Barak is going to go against the army of Israel's enemies, the Canaanite king Jabin and his general Sisera. So we're given multiple aspects that point us to Christ, right? From a ruler to a prophet and then even a warrior who will hear the call of God and be faithful to it. But Barak isn't quite faithful, not like how Jesus would be, right? Types often fall short of the anti-type. We learn that the glory of the victory will end up going to a woman. You might think that the glory would go to Deborah, but in fact it goes to a non-Israelite who was, re- who was related to Moses' father-in-law, a woman named Jael. 
and Israel has victory over Jabin's army, and Sisera ends up fleeing, fleeing to Jael's people for safety. But it's there that he actually meets his demise, his downfall. The Jael drives a tent peg into his skull. The Canaanites have been given over to Israel by God's mighty hand, and a time of peace is once again restored to Israel. And so that cycle is restarted. That's where we left off. Israel's back at peace now. That brings us to chapter 5. Usually at this point, we read of the cycle renewing. We read of a time of peace, and then comes Israel again, and then they are given over into their sin, and they live like the world. But this chapter is different. It's actually even unique as we consider the general flow of Scripture. There's not very many uh, passages when you consider the whole breadth of God's Word that are songs like this outside of the book of Psalms, of course. And so the song itself, we note that, or has been noted, that it can be broken into three parts, three sections. We're going to do the first section tonight, and then I might combine the last two sections into one sermon next week, or we may have to do each section uh, given them their own time period. We'll see how that goes. Let me give you the major sections up front. Verse 1 through 11c, uh, which we'll be dealing with tonight, tells us of the strong Lord and the weak or humbled people. Verse 11d through 23, we are provided insight concerning God's old covenant people. So that means Adam's question. We'll have to deal with that next week. Sorry. And then verse 24 to 31, we're contrasting the riches, the, excuse me, the righteous and the wicked. So let's read the word and then pray after. The, the reading of God's word beginning at verse 1 in Judges 5. Feel free to follow along. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam. On that day, the leaders took the lead in Israel. The people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When the new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among the 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offer themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on the white donkeys. You who sit on rich carpets and you who walk by the way. To the sound of the musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. May he grant us understanding and exalt Christ from it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for your might, for your great strength. How it is even your might that has preserved your word these many generations, not letting it fall into the hands of wicked men who would cause it to be erased from this earth. We thank you for preserving it, that we may learn of these events, you know, these true stories, and see how they teach us of your will and point us to our Savior Christ. May he be exalted tonight in his name we pray. Amen. So, the first thing we should see about our text is, I went over this already a little bit, but it's a song. We mentioned that already. But we read that it is a song here in verse 1, or I should say we read that it is sung out loud. It's sung. 
And that's pretty, it's, that's pretty significant itself, that there is a song here at the end of the events of the last chapter. Now, it should be noted that there are all kinds of songs, aren't there? I have for us today as well in your small groups. Hopefully you've talked about this a little bit, but we have songs that capture our hurt and pain. They're sad songs, songs that make us cry. We have love songs. We have songs that tell stories. We have happy songs. But something that we learn about from Scripture are songs of deliverance. Moses had a song of deliverance we read in Exodus. David has a song of deliverance. And we see that Deborah and Barak, and really what we see here is, is Deborah, I'll get to that in a moment, that there's a song of deliverance now for them as well. And that means a couple of things about the events in this chapter, or excuse me, a couple of things about the events from chapter 4, in other words. Number one, God's not ashamed of the events which happened in chapter 4. He's not ashamed of raising up a woman to rule in Israel. He's not ashamed to use Deborah as a prophet. He's not ashamed of the scandalous way that Jael had victory over Sisera, and it, and it was scandalous, no doubt about that. More on that in next week or in two weeks. But let's not miss the point. The people are not ashamed, but even more, God is not ashamed. These are inspired words of Scripture. God is not sitting there causing His people to feel remorse for the things that have happened or even the way that they have happened. They're celebrating all of it. Even think of the cross and the torture that Christ endured there on it. Remember, this account of deliverance is supposed to remind us of the deliverance that Jesus gives to his people. And don't we have songs about the cross? Don't we sing about the blood of Christ? Don't we offer praise to God for Jesus hanging on the cross and taking the wrath that we deserve, his blood being poured out for us? It's kind of strange, I think, to think about singing songs like that if you really think about it, it's from a lost person's point of view, and you hear that from people. They are, they are offended sometimes. There's even a classic song written by the Gettys that they tried to soften it and, and take out part of it because this cross work of Christ was offensive. But it's not strange. It's not strange if you understand these things as the means of God's deliverance in your life. When you see the cross work of Jesus Christ as that, it's not this gruesome torture event, but it's the beautiful mercy of God. It's not a stumbling block to you. Like we read that Paul says it's a stumbling block to the Gentiles in the New Testament. It's the very mercy of God in your life. And you understand then that we do not need to be ashamed of the gospel. Just like Deborah here is not ashamed. She's not ashamed at all. She's singing about these very things. You understand that God's ways are right. Just a few verses. This is Psalm 1830. This reads, This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. And the exact same verse is, is quoted from 2 Samuel 22:31 as well. It's word for word. And then Deuteronomy 32.4, might be familiar with this. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness, and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So not only are God's ways right, his ways, his works, they're perfect. He does everything well. Even in all the tragedy and the scandalous way that Jael went about this, didn't it point us to Christ? 
And we talked about that last week, how even Jael's act, how it caught off, caught the enemies of God's people off guard. And God is not ashamed of the way in which deliverance comes. And we are not to be ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1.16. And if we're not ashamed, well then what are we? Or what should we do? Well, we should sing out praise. We should give you know, honor and glory and worship to God for the deliverance that He gives. And that's what's happening here. And so there's another thing that we realize in noting that there's a song based on the account of chapter 4. It tells us that God's judgment is worth exalting Him for. It's worth celebrating. God's judgment is praiseworthy. Have, have you thought much about that before? You know, we typically praise God for His mercy and for His grace, for His love, for His holiness, for His divine nature, the way that He is, in other words, His attributes. But would you consider that it is also right to praise Him for His judgment upon evil? That's what this song is doing at a number of parts. I mean, it even praises God for the way in which Jael obtained victory. And this isn't the only place that Scripture does this sort of thing. Psalm 96 is titled, Praise to the God Who Comes in Judgment, for example. A whole psalm about it. Psalm 149, 6-9 reads this, Let the high praises of God be in their throats, and two-edged swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. See, so God's being praised there for the judgment he brings. Or what about the account in Revelation, in which God's judgment on sin is praised by even the angels? Revelation 5, 11 through 12. Okay, let's look there. Let's turn there in your Bible. This is John's vision. It says, being in verse 11, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands, so in other words, a, a number he can't count. And they're all saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Okay, so again... They are praising God for His judgment on sin that Christ paid the cost for. So these events that we read in chapter 4, they are reasons for us to boast in Christ. They are reasons for us to not be ashamed and for us to praise God for. It's reminding us of the same sort of response we should have to the deliverance that we have in Christ Jesus. This song of Deborah's is an everlasting testimony to the strength of the Lord, and we need to have those things in our hearts, in our mind, as we approach the text of chapter 5. Now, this song is telling us that the events of chapter 4 are something to not be ashamed of and something that we should actually, in fact, praise God for. So with that foundation built, let's consider this first section. Verse 1 begins affirming for us that it's a song. We read that they sing these words out, most likely on a day of memorial after, after the events transpired. These inspired words of praise are given to them by the Holy Spirit, and it says that it's sung by Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam. But it seems like this is actually a song that the prophetess Deborah wrote. Even though I know this verse 1, it comes across as they're both, you know, singing it here at the same time. Look down just a little bit at verse 7. 
here in the same chapter. Deborah says there, I, Deborah, rose as a mother in Israel. Okay, so it's first person at that point. And then furthermore, the verb sang in verse 1 is singular, even though it has two people mentioning it. So what most commentators believe here is that we should understand this song as a song given by God to the prophet judge Deborah, and then later, most likely, Barak sang it with her, or perhaps he even sang it himself after. And of course, he was part of this plan of God in delivering Israel. So the point being, though, that even though we are not Old Covenant Israel, this is a song that we can all sing. Not that we're going to sing it tonight or anything. But, you know, we can sing it too, or we can read it and mean it just as well as God's people did back then when it was originally written, in so much as we are God's people as well. The victory that is being celebrated here is a victory that we too can sing praise for, because it is God who's being exalted in this song. Even though it's a song about what happened to people who lived thousands of years ago, it is God who is being worshipped, and He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it is God who is the consumer of worship. Have you thought about that? Worship isn't about making you feel a certain way. Worship isn't supposed to be played to your teenage years, and so it's going to sound a certain way, it's going to look a certain way. You're not the consumer of worship. It's not about us. God is the consumer of worship. We offer worship, but we don't truly consume it ourselves. Now notice verse 3. We'll skip down a couple verses. We'll come back to verse 2 in a moment. Verse 3 reads, Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. Note, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, to the God of Israel. Look at where her boast is. It's in the Lord. She's singing to him. She, she wants the kings of Canaan to hear it. She's not trying to hide it from her pagan neighbors. She wants them to hear it, but she's not truly singing to them. Her first priority is worshiping the Lord. She's impassioned about worshiping him, isn't she? That's what's driving her praise, the victory that God has given. And that needs to be the same sort of mindset about us when we do things, friends. When, when you do something, is it for Christ's glory? Or is it so that you'll be seen and noticed? Uh, when I am putting together a sermon, of course, I'm, I'm thinking of you all. I'm thinking of you, know, you all and, and what this text is saying and what it is that God most it, it likely is communicating through it, what he's most clearly communicating through it. And I'm looking to apply that to you and trusting that the Holy Spirit will apply it all the better, more, much more so than I can. But ultimately, my first priority is that I am looking to worship Jesus in how I deliver the sermon and what I say. Again, He is the consumer of worship. God is. So He's the first priority. And so this song here, Deborah is, is praising God. It's to the Lord that she's singing because of the deliverance that He has given. He is worthy of praise, friends. You know, we, we don't gather for the purpose of receiving something from God. Now, don't get me wrong. We certainly do receive blessing and grace in our worship, those of us who are united to Christ by faith, because God himself is gracious and kind to us in Christ. But the main reason we gather is to glorify God. 
That's why we are here, to give him what he deserves. And so all of God's people from whatever generation and age can sing this song and in doing so can read these words and and truly worship him from their from their heart that has been united to Christ in faith. Then secondly, in verse 2, we read the Lord is praised for avenging Israel. The phrase that the leaders took the lead is is, is a bit of confusing translation. Uh, prefer the King James here where it reads that the the Lord has avenged Israel. They're implying that the leader who took the lead here is actually Yahweh himself. God is the leader of Israel. He appointed Deborah. He called Barak. He, the strong Lord, obtained the victory and routed Sisera's army. Passages is translated again in the King James, praise ye the Lord for the avenging of Israel. But note, and we talked about this the last two weeks, so I won't belabor the point now. God did it through willing participants. The people willingly offered themselves, as we read in this verse, because of the mercy of God in their life. Deborah, Barak, the army of 10,000, Jael, they work within the providential plan of God with responsibility and action and choice, although being ultimately directed by God's sovereign hand. And then we're shown in verse 4 and 5 the strength of the Lord. You remember, for the past couple of weeks, we've made much of the strong Lord and that it was truly his victory over Jabin and Sisera. But remember also, Jabin had 900 chariots, which would have provided a problem for Israel, which apart from the help of the Lord, Israel would have had no chance against. And these verses give us a possible clue as to how Israel overcame all of those chariots. How it is that the battlefield was advantageous to Israel. It would seem, based off of these verses, that there was a great ecological event. And scripture is abundantly clear on too many occasions for me to account that God is sovereign over weather and so-called natural events. Remember Jesus calming the storm, for example, there in the gospel accounts. The, um, the disciples and Jesus are doing ministry and they're traveling from one side of a galley to the other, and they're on the, on the lake, and it is a, it's a massive lake, and the winds would sometimes come whipping down off of the mountain, causing big storms and massive swells on the water. And the disciples, having many of them been seasoned fishermen, could tell what was happening. They were about to be capsized. Their boat was not able to withstand the storm, and Jesus is asleep on the bottom of the boat. And so they go, they terrified, they wake him up, and they cry out to him and tell him, Jesus, we are, we are perishing. And he wakes very calmly, and he gets up, and he tells the storm to be still. He commands it to stop. And instantly, upon the word of the God-man, Jesus, the storm ceases. And the disciples feared at that moment. They, they thought to themselves, what sort of a man? is this they were beginning to understand at some level at some point that jesus is not just some prophet he's more than that and so it's clear that god is sovereign over all sorts of uh, ecological events and so perhaps according to uh, what we read in verse 4 here the heavens opened up and rains poured down perhaps god brought a great rainfall on the wheels to the chariots became clogged and that gave Israel an advantage. But the real impressive part of this song is, is not even actually that um, God is able to do such things with the weather. 
but it's impressive about how Deborah ties this whole event to the event at Sinai in verse 5. Remember what happened there at Mount Sinai. It's where Moses was given the Ten Commandments. It's where judgment is promised for violating the moral law. It's where God's holiness was put on display. And Deborah's point, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is that we see those very things in this battle as well, all these years after. Uh, judgment on lawlessness. God's holiness is put on display. Do you remember at Mount Sinai, when God's presence came upon the mountain and only Moses was allowed up? Remember that the people, Moses told them, number one, to take off his shoes because he was on holy ground. And number two, that even a person or even a beast, an animal, couldn't even step onto the mountain because if they did, it would kill them because God's holiness was there. And so in this battle against the Canaanites, God's ju judgment on lawlessness is being displayed. His holiness is put on display here. And so she's praising God for that. He's worthy of praise, friends. Then beginning in verse 6, the song's attention is given to the, the weak or the humbled people. We've sung about the strong Lord. Here we're reminded as to why a strong Lord is actually needed. And it's because we are weak. We are helpless. That's why Christ is, he fulfills the roles of the prophet, priest, and king. Why do we need Christ as the king? Because we are weak and helpless. And he is a king who is strong and fights battles for us. For time's sake, we're not going to go over every detail in these verses, but we read things like there was a lot of crime, you couldn't go out into the highways, people stayed home, uh, they were chasing after false gods, they were choosing new gods even. People died at the hand of Cicero's army. Where was where is the sword at? Where is the shield at? There was nothing they could do. And even though we are speaking here of the nation of Israel and their sin, but we need to remember that their sin can be summed up as the canonization of their culture. Remember, they were supposed to go into Canaan, and they were supposed to expel everyone. And they were supposed to be the holy land as a type of the new heavens and the new earth. But they didn't do that. And so what happened was they adopted the ways of the world. And that, because that's the case, it's not so different than the challenges that lay before us here and now. Now, even though we haven't been given this land promise to Israel, it was fulfilled. Um, it's, that land promise is not something that Christians are looking forward now. The, the land promise that we have comes in the new heavens and the new earth. It was, a, it was a type of that. But we living here now in this present fallen world before Christ's second coming, we have choices before us. Will we follow Christ? Or will we follow the ways of the world? Will we be conformed to Christ? Or conformed to the world? Will our worldview be formed by Scripture and God's will? Or will it be formed by Hollywood and the major news outlets? Will we care about Christ's glory or the world's? Is Christ's glory the main thing in your life, or is your glory the main thing? Now, giving yourself to the world never turns out well. It may seem like it is in the, in the, in the moment, but it never ends well. We'll see that happening to Israel, or we do see that happening to Israel. It brought about the very judgment of God upon them. It brought God to raise up Sisera and Jabin. 
Thankfully, though, God was gracious to them on account of his covenant promises. And he brought a deliverer. And so, friends, we need to understand that God will not fail to bring judgment. Judgment will either be paid by yourself or it will have been paid on Christ on your behalf. And then Christ's righteous life will be accredited to you by faith. If not for that, if not for God's mercy in the gospel, you understand that the judgment we see administered upon the Canaanites is a type of the judgment that has come upon those enemies of God in any age. And at, and at the final judgment, sin never goes unpunished. It is either punished upon us or it's punished upon Christ. And Christ bids you in the gospel to come to him, to be restored unto God, to count on his resurrection that you too will inherit eternal life, that you too can rejoice and sing songs of praise for you have been delivered. In doing so, joy is given to you, true joy, a joy and gladness that comes from the gospel, just like King David says in Psalm 51, where he writes that God's face is hidden from his sins, that his iniquities are blotted out because Christ's atonement, his future atonement for David, mind you, it is sufficient. And then we hear that he, that he hears joys and glad, joy and gladness in that. I believe it's verse 6 there in Psalm 51. But that's exactly what you see happening in verses 9 to 11 here. Let's, let me get back to it. Let's read verses 9 through 11 in Judges chapter 5. So th this section here is kind of closing out this first section. And it's a response of the people to the deliverance that God has provided. And so Deborah says, My heart goes out to the commander of his, commanders of Israel, who offered themselves willingly among the people, bless the Lord. In verse 10, tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way. That's in reference to the trade that would start coming. Remember the highways were closed, the byways were closed. Now, now things are open. And so now these foreigners who would come in and they would do business with Israel are coming back. And then look at verse 11. To the sound of musicians... At the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. So a, a song is back in their mouth. Music is playing. They're singing songs of praise. Do you desire that? Do you want to have a joy that the world can't steal, even though it will try? And then look to Christ. Christ crucified is glorious. Is he to you? Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are so worthy of praise as we see Deborah resounding in praise for your wondrous works. And we think of the works that you did in Deborah's life and Israel's life and how those were meant to show of how you would work to deliver your people in Christ. And so our, our rejoicing is is even louder, Lord. You have given to us more light, and we praise you for the salvation that is had in Christ. We confessed that Christ crucified is glorious, and for those among us who don't yet see that, we ask that you would soften 
hearts that they may, and all of us, even still, Lord, that our hearts would be softened, that we may be more conformed to Christ. To you be all glory and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.